This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. People love a good murder story. Now I'm sure some people will protest at this idea. You may say to yourself, no, not me. I would never want to hear about some horrible murder. But Hollywood screenwriters and storytellers dating back to, and including, Edgar Allan Poe would claim otherwise. From Sherlock Holmes to Hercule Poirot to Murder, She Wrote and CSI, people love a good murder story. I'm as guilty as the next guy. In my teens, I went through my Sherlock Holmes phase and my Agatha Christie phase. And somewhere along the lines, I got sucked into the hard-boiled worlds of Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and John D. MacDonald. And my heart never really left. I love a good story where a hard-nosed detective will stop at nothing to find out who the murderer is and bring he or she to justice. But what if the central mystery isn't even so much who killed the victim, but who that victim was in the first place? It's happened more often than you might think, and not just in fictional stories. Even in this modern era of forensic science, computer databases, and your sneaking suspicion the NSA knows what you had for breakfast this morning, Murder victims turn up all the time with no identification and practically no way for investigators to even begin digging for the truth because they're stymied by that most basic question, who is the deceased? Sometimes trying to answer that question can lead the investigator right into a dead end, leaving both amateur and professional sleuths alike with an enduring mystery that will baffle us for decades. I'm Nate Hale coming to you from underneath my economy-sized tinfoil hat, and this is The Conspirators. On November 24, 1970, a 26-year-old man was hiking in the Isdalen Valley of Mount Ulriksen in Bergen, Norway, when he ran into a woman who seemed completely out of place on the hiking trail. She was too well-dressed for one thing, and didn't seem at all equipped for the rugged outdoors. She also appeared to be utterly terrified, and for good reason. She dashed past the young man on the trail, and so did a pair of foreign-looking men in dark trench coats who were in hot pursuit. Before the startled young man could react, they were gone. Five days later, a university professor discovered the woman's naked and lifeless body draped across a still-burning campfire. She was badly burned, and she reeked of gasoline. She had a large bruise on the side of her neck, indicating she had suffered a massive blow. Investigators found a confusing array of evidence at the scene, including a burned passport, a pair of bottles that smelled of gasoline, another empty liquor bottle, a boxed lunch, a silver spoon with the monogram scraped off, and a pile of stylish woman's clothes with all the labels removed. The autopsy would show that the woman had a large number of sleeping pills in her system. Distinct dental work showed she had visited a dentist in South America. And further deepening the mystery, the woman's fingerprints had been sanded off. When news broke of the grisly discovery, the young man from the woods contacted authorities and told them what he had witnessed. 
The man was stunned when authorities told him to forget the entire incident and that the woman's death would never be solved. Nearly 50 years later, they were right. Police officially have ruled the case of the Isdal woman, as she's come to be known, as a suicide. And to this day, no one knows who she really was. Investigators traced her steps back to a Bergen train station where they found two suitcases with all the fingerprints wiped clean. Inside, they discovered nine passports, each with its own fake identity, a collection of wigs, non-prescription eyeglasses, and several more silver spoons that matched the one found at the crime scene. They also found 500 German marks and 130 Norwegian crowns sewn into the lining of the suitcase. Perhaps most interesting of all, they found the woman's notebook, which was written in a numeric code. Police deciphered the code and discovered it was actually a diary of the woman's travels. So who was this mystery woman? With the help of Interpol, authorities developed and distributed a composite sketch of her, and combining the woman's itinerary with the testimony of various witnesses who came forward claiming to have had contact with her, police began to retrace her steps. She had stayed at numerous hotels throughout Bergen in the weeks prior to her death, and the people who encountered her told authorities that she was fluent in numerous languages. She had a habit of checking into a hotel and abruptly changing rooms. Conflicting testimony as to her appearance showed she had been using the items in her luggage to disguise herself. The last known sighting of her before encountering the young man in the woods was on November 23rd. She checked out of her room at the Hotel Marin, where she paid in cash and left in a taxi. Police have speculated over the years that she may have been an international thief, or what seems more likely to me, a spy. But the fact is, no one really knows. To this day, the woman's story remains the most famous unsolved crime in Norway. If all this sounds familiar, that may be because there's another, even more famous case out of Adelaide, Australia that preceded the Isdal woman's death by more than two decades, and that closely parallels the case in many ways. At around 6 a.m. on December 1st, 1948, a pair of horseback riders on Adelaide's Somerton Beach came across a dead man lying in the sand, with his head propped up against a retaining wall. The evening before, a few people reported seeing the man in the same position, although they'd all assumed he was drunk and sleeping it off. The man was clearly no vagrant. He was well-dressed, in a tailored suit and tie, and he wore freshly polished shoes. Though strangely, all the identifying tags had been removed from his clothing. He was clean-shaven, and his fingernails were well manicured. He was in excellent physical condition, with exceptionally muscled calves, like those of a dancer, as some investigators have noted. Detectives found a package of chewing gum on him, a couple of combs, a used bus ticket, a packet of cigarettes that contained a different, more expensive brand inside, and an unused train ticket, but no wallet or identification. Whoever the Summerton man was, it was clear someone didn't want anyone else to find out his true identity. An autopsy would show that the man hadn't died from a heart attack or other natural causes. Pathologists presumed he had been poisoned, although no one could say by what substance, nor could they find any trace of poison in his system. Several of his vital organs were engorged with blood, leading the investigators to deduce whatever the poison had been it caused the man to die from massive hemorrhaging. They ran his fingerprints, but to this day they have never shown a match to anyone in the Western Hemisphere. So who was he? Like the Isdal woman, no one knows. 
The lack of identification and the mysterious method of the man's death would lead people to speculate that he may also have been a spy. Remember, this was 1948, the early days of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and the U.S. and U.K. governments believed there were Russian sleeper agents infiltrating all walks of life. Things took another turn when a couple of locals came forward to suggest the Somerton man may have been a fellow named E.C. Johnson, who hadn't been seen for a few days. The lead seemed promising until E.C. Johnson reappeared, alive and well. The case grew cold and the authorities had the body embalmed to keep the evidence from rotting away under them. For six weeks they had no leads and it seemed like no more answers were going to come their way. Then on January 14, 1949, someone discovered the Somerton Man's suitcase in the lost and found at the Adelaide train station. For the most part, the case's contents were mundane, a dressing gown, pajamas, underwear, shaving equipment, a pencil and some stamps. Somewhat more interesting were a knife and a sharpened pair of scissors, a square of zinc, and the sort of stenciling brush a sailor might use to mark cargo on merchant ships. Like the clothing, most of the identifying labels had been removed except for a wash bag that bore the name Keen. Detectives tried to run the name down, but it led nowhere. During the official inquest into the Somerton man's death, investigators found another clue that had been missed until then. A tiny scrap of paper hidden in the fob watch pocket of the man's trousers. It was a piece of a page torn from a copy of a book of poetry called the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. On the paper was a two-word phrase, Tamam Shud, which roughly translates to, It is Ended. Police went to the media with the new clue, hoping someone would be able to provide a lead to the whereabouts of the book the paper had come from. And as a matter of fact, someone did. A local man came forward with the actual copy of the book, a rare translated edition that someone had tossed inside the open rear window of his car that had been parked near the beach on the night the Somerton man died. Inside the book were several notations written in pencil that appeared to be some sort of cipher. There was also the unlisted phone number of a local nurse named Jessica Thompson who lived less than a mile from where the Somerton man's body was found. Jessica Thompson denied knowing the man, although authorities noted that when they showed her a picture of a plaster cast of the man's face, the woman appeared noticeably shocked, almost to the point where it appeared she might faint. Later, some witnesses would come forward who would swear they had seen the Somerton man earlier the day before walking up to Jessica Thompson's front door and knocking before walking away. Although Ms. Thompson swore she had never met the man, she did admit to once owning a copy of the Robayat back during World War II, but she said she gave it to an army lieutenant named Alf Boxel. Thinking they might finally have determined the Somerton man's true identity, detectives tracked down Alf Boxel, but their hopes were dashed when they found Boxel was alive and well and still in possession of his copy of the book and that he had had no contact with Miss Thompson since 1945. Police suspected more and more that some sort of espionage might be involved in this case. The fact that two men who appeared to both know Jessica Thompson had matching copies of the Rubaiyat couldn't be a coincidence. So what was it with the Rubaiyat? Was it some sort of code book for spies? It is known that a common method of communication in spycraft was to use a particular book as a cipher key. Government officials had long suspected Australia had been infiltrated by Soviet agents. The continent was home to several sensitive military locations, and both the U.S. and U.K. were known to have tested certain top-secret weapons there. But with both Thompson and Boxall refusing to say any more, the case grew cold again, and although occasionally it would pop up in the media from time to time over the years, no new major information surfaced. 
In the 1970s, Alf Boxel gave a television interview in which he admitted to having been involved in intelligence work, though he still denied any knowledge of the Somerton Man or his death. A more recent investigation into the Somerton Man's death suggested that he may have been poisoned with digitalis, a plant extract that in the right dosage can create similar symptoms to those the Somerton Man fell prey to. It should be noted that since the 1920s, the KGB had experimented with a number of different toxins, including digitalis, which was used occasionally in the field for its ability to mimic a heart attack if the pathologist wasn't looking for it. In fact, three months prior to the death of the Somerton Man, an overdose of digitalis was reported as the cause of death for the United States Assistant Treasury Secretary Harry Dexter White, who had been accused of Soviet espionage. For decades, the cipher inside Somerton Man's copy of the Rubiat has gone undeciphered. Just recently, a former UK detective claims he has discovered an even deeper mystery quite literally within the cipher itself. The detective says that each individual letter contains its own micro-writing with its own code, and that he has managed to decipher some of that code's meaning. Some of the micro-letters appear to refer to what would have been then top-secret military aircraft, as well as the flight number of a Bulgarian airline. Professor Derek Abbott of Adelaide University is probably the world's most foremost expert on the Summerton Man case, but he remains unconvinced by this new evidence. In recent years, a seemingly major breakthrough in the case came to light in the form of Jessica Thompson's daughter Kate. In a 60 Minutes interview, Kate Thompson claimed that not only did her mother lie about knowing the identity of the Summerton Man, but that she was also a Russian spy, and quite possibly, the person who murdered him. Kate told 60 Minutes that her mother secretly spoke Russian, that she sometimes referred to the investigation into Somerton Man's death as being above state police level. She also had a strange fascination with pharmacology. At the time of the Somerton Man's death, Jessica Thompson had an 18-month-old son, and some investigators believe the boy may have been the love child of Thompson and the Somerton Man, noting several similarities between Thompson's son Robin and the Somerton Man. For starters, the two men appeared to share the same unusually shaped ears. Another unusual characteristic they seemed to share were their teeth. The Somerton man had a rare anatomical abnormality in his mouth. He never formed lateral incisors, so his canines abutted his front teeth. Professor Abbott did some detective work and determined the same was true for Robin. Professor Abbott has been pressing for years to have the Somerton man's remains exhumed, and have his DNA compared against Thompson's grandchildren. But so far, his efforts have remained unsuccessful. One more interesting similarity. Remember the Somerton man's unusually developed calves, like those of a dancer might have? Well, Jessica Thompson enrolled her son Robin in ballet lessons at an early age, and eventually the man would grow to join the Australian ballet. Was she training her son to follow in his father's footsteps? Although Kate Thompson's story remains intriguingly plausible, literally hundreds of people have come forward over the years claiming they know the identity of the Somerton Man. This includes a very promising lead from 2011. Back then, a woman approached a biological anthropologist with her father's U.S. Siemens ID card for comparison to photos of the Somerton Man. The scientists noticed several similar features the two men shared, including the previously mentioned unusual ears. The fact that it was a Siemens ID was also intriguing. Remember, among the items found inside the Somerton Man's suitcase was a stenciling kit like one a merchant seaman might carry. 
The name on the ID card the man's daughter produced said H.C. Reynolds. Investigators learned that the card was issued in the U.S. back in 1918 and that it gave the man's nationality as British. As intriguing as this lead may be, it may be another dead end. Some investigators have looked further into the claim and found indications that H.G. Reynolds was a real person who appears to have died in 1953. If all this isn't enough to make your head spin, consider this. Back in 1945, a full three years before the Somerton man died, yet another man was found dead with a copy of the Rubaiyat open on his chest. This one was a 34-year-old Singapore native named George Marshall. His body was found in Ashton Park in Sydney. Although the Somerton man's copy of the Rubaiyat was an extremely rare 1859 translation by Edward Fitzgerald, which is unusual all by itself, the copy found clutched in the dead hands of George Marshall was even rarer. In fact, it didn't seem to exist at all. Marshall's copy indicated it was a seventh edition of a rare print run, although records revealed that particular print run had stopped at the fifth edition. Although there's no direct evidence that it had anything to do with his death, it's interesting to note that Marshall was the brother of David Saul Marshall, a Singaporean politician and lawyer who served as Singapore's first chief minister and was the founder of the Workers' Party of Singapore, one of the two dominant political parties in Singapore. They held an official inquest into Joseph Marshall's death on August 14, 1945, and his death was ruled a suicide by poisoning. A woman named Gwyneth Dorothy Graham, who was friendly with Marshall, testified at the inquest. She was found dead in her bathtub 13 days later, face down and naked with her wrist slit. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. If you like the show, you can help it grow by downloading it on iTunes and leaving us a review. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and of course our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.